Before we get started today, guys, I want to find out how working from home has been going for you. If it's been going well, great. If not, remarkably remote from GoToMeeting will help you succeed in today's new normal. In just three minutes or less, we'll share simple but helpful tips to keep you on track. From managing your motivation, workload, and relationships to hosting and attending virtual events that keep you connected with your clients and colleagues. So check out Remarkably Remote on your favorite podcasting platform or head to gotomeeting.com slash tips. You want it. You need it. It's what everyone's talking about. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Now, here's Kevin. All right, today Cooley uh, is with me, so it's a Cooley and Kevin show, at least for 40, 45 minutes, something like that. And then I've got a few things I want to get to. Um, But Cooley's here with us at the top. And you were going to come on with me on Monday because I know you have been enjoying The Last Dance. And Tommy and I spent a lot of time talking about it yesterday as well. But you hadn't watched those final two episodes, but you went back here in the last day or two and you watched the final two episodes. And I think something that not everybody knows about you is that you were a bit of an NBA fan and you were a Utah Utah Jazz fan. And both the 97 and 98 finals are featured heavily in these final two episodes. Uh, What were your takeaways from it? I thought the entire thing was amazing. I mean, absolutely incredible, and I thought the last two, the last two were really well done. Uh, I remember those games because I was, I think I was in high school at that point. Like I was a sophomore, junior in high school, and so I remember sitting at a friend's house and watching the Jazz run through the playoffs against the Rockets and trying to overcome that, and and then the Bulls, and especially the the second year, thinking. Dwayne Stockton and Malone were playing, and Hornacek and Russell and Ostertag, and I thought they would win. And obviously, everyone understood what Michael Jordan was. I thought the Jazz would win, and you know, you you go back and you watch this series, and you just realize getting to know Michael Jordan better. The way I'm sure a lot of people do, the Jazz weren't going to win. Nobody was going to beat Michael Jordan. <laughs> In either of those two years, and it didn't even matter if they poisoned him in Utah. Um, I did think one thing was interesting, and then you know, I'll like go a little bit. That you, the, the Delta Center and the Utah Jazz environment was one of the most hostile environments. I mean, you're talking about 30,000 Mormons packing a arena. I'm not quite sure it was as brutal as they made it out to be. Oh, really? I went to some jazz games. It's pretty benign. Now, maybe those finals were completely different, but that, that to me, seemed a little bit crazy. When Jordan's kids came on and said, yeah, Mom wouldn't let us go, and no one would have hurt Jordan's kids in Salt Lake City. I'm just telling you right now. Although, they, apparently, they poisoned Michael Jordan's pizza. Yeah, well, there's there's a follow-up to, uh, to that story yesterday, which which if you haven't uh, heard about, I'll tell you in about in a moment. But, you know, y- Utah and Salt Lake, they've had a reputation over the years of being very hostile and, by the way, vicious with, you know, plenty of racial, you know, overtones to their viciousness over the years. I mean, it, it's been a thing at Utah Jazz home games um, and but but when you were when you were there, d- you said you did go to some Utah Jazz games. Did you ever d- did you go to any of those finals games? No, no, no. I would have had the money to go to those finals games, and I'm I'm not going to truly speak for the Delta Center. I just 
I went to a lot of college football games in Utah and played a lot of college football games in Utah and went to jazz games. And right. I, I'm not, not going to say Coast. anything was or wasn't said, but I'm just going to say it's not Philly. Yeah, right. Right. Of course. Like I think, I think when people hear about how difficult and how NBA players view the Utah um, home court advantage, and there's been plenty said by players over the years. I mean, um, you know, Russell Westbrook recently, you know, had an issue with a fan at a Jazz game, and and sort of went yeah. off on on the Utah fan experience over the years. But you're right; like most sports fans, when they think about hostile environments, aren't going to think about Salt Lake City, Utah Jazz fans. They're going to think about you know Philadelphia Eagle fans, or um, you know some sort of East Coast fan base more times than not um, than Salt Lake. But o- overall, you enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. Tommy and I spent. 30 minutes talking about it yesterday. I did it on Monday. But, you know, what What was your favorite part of the whole 10-part documentary? My favorite? I, I, it's hard for me to say that there's an individual favorite part. But I loved the absolute asshole Jordan could be to win. He didn't care. He, he, he was going to treat everyone like shit unless they stepped up. I thought some of the Kerr stuff was interesting in the last ones where, you know, Kerr learned from Paxson. you got to prove yourself to Michael Jordan. And who's the other dude that Michael Jordan berated the entire time? That was hysterical. Scotty Burrell. with it. Yeah. Yeah, Burrell. And you could see the guys as they talked about Mike. Like You could see Scotty's love for Michael Jordan, but also his understanding of, yeah, it was hard to play with Michael Jordan, but that's why we won. I was there with Phil and Michael Jordan, and that's why we won. Who was the most? It's like people aren't that competitive. I played in a played professional sports. I played college sports. I, I don't know anybody like that. Nobody. Well, maybe that's what, one of the reasons the teams you were on never won big. Oh, and I will tell you, maybe my favorite part was I think almost the last line and discussing the Bulls organization and saying all you needed was a match. And how did you not think about the last 25 years of the Redskins organization when you hear all you needed was one matchstick, and it was Michael Jordan, and he changed an organization. Football's a little different because you got 11 players on the field and 11 players on defense, and Michael Jordan can't do just that. But that, that I thought, was a really impactful line by Jordan. It's a lot different, you know, in basketball, one player can truly turn a franchise, you know, and even a bad franchise at that because the Bulls were a bad franchise when he got there and he turned it around and, and turned it into, you know, a dynasty. But so, you know, you didn't answer my question, though, because maybe one of the reasons, and this isn't your fault, it would be the fault of those that were picking the players is that you didn't have players like Jordan who despised losing even more than he enjoyed winning. You know, I'll never forget Gary Clark um, once talking about, you know, his competitiveness during the Redskins championship years, and he said, we had a lot of guys on the team that hated losing even more than they enjoyed winning. 
and he really felt that that was like an attribute, a characteristic of of what you know uh, the organization would look for in, in key players on the team. And maybe that's what was lacking at times. I mean, I, I think Clinton Portis was was super competitive on the field. Who was the most competitive? Nobody was Jordan, but wh- who was like to the point where they were annoying as a competitor that you played with? Anybody? Nobody. <laughs> I think nobody. Well, if you want to be Michael Jordan and take it to that competitive level, you practice at that competitive level. And and as much as I love Clinton, we're not. No one in Clinton won't. Is no one's going to pretend that he worked like that every day. Right. And so to hold people accountable the way Jordan held people accountable means not only you have to be as talented as he is, but you have to work constantly to be that talented. And he proved every day and talk shit in practice and did anything he could do to win every single day. He just did it and he loved it. I hated the end though. I hated, I hated the, the, yes, the mix up of, Phil wasn't going to stay, but then Mike saying he would have stayed and everybody saying, oh, yeah, they, we could have done it again. I hated that. And I hated Michael Jordan saying it killed him to not try to go for a seventh championship. I, that ate me up. I, why didn't we do this? Why did that not happen? The politics of it is what sucks about pro sports. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that that was, for me, going back to episode one, like how did any responsible adult let this end that had some decision-making authority? You know, back then, you know, Jordan, unlike LeBron James, wasn't owner, general manager, coach, and star player. I mean, Jordan wasn't even consulted on the first coaching change when they when they fired Doug right. Collins and and hired um, and hired Phil Jackson. But this was, you know, this was a a um, a result of an owner who basically deferred to a to a a, a general manager who felt like he wasn't getting enough credit and was insecure about that. And that's what really started the balls rolling towards the end of this thing. I mean, what general manager with a five-time championship coach goes to the coach before a season and says, you could go 82-0 and this year and win it again. This is your final year. I mean, how completely outrageous is that? But beyond that, it's outrageous that the owner of the team didn't say, wait a minute, you're fired. Phil's coming back, and as Michael described, we're going to sign all these people to one-year deals, and we're going for seven. Like, it's crazy that that didn't happen. It speaks to some, you know, it speaks to a fault that that Reinsdorf had and a blind spot. No, I'm I'm totally with you on that. And you know what? Maybe you can't pay everybody. But honestly, I thought I saw in Jordan's eye, I'm just going to play psychic here, that if they would have brought him back with four new dudes, he would have won. I swear to you, it looked like Jordan just sat there and went, I would have won with anybody. It didn't matter. I would have won with anybody. And, I mean, look at the impact of Jordan. Like Stern's talking about, we had, what, 50 countries when he started in 82, and we were in over 250 countries when he was done in 98. Or, like, all of the things that went around Michael Jordan. How did they just decide to let that end? It's absolutely asinine. 
It really is. You know, um, you just reminded me of that scene in the final episode. I think it was the final episode where Stern is presenting Jordan with his most valuable player trophy. And I'm assuming that was either a playoff game or a late season. It would have been a playoff game because it would have happened at that point. And Jordan accepts it. And Stern just looks at him and he says, thank you. Because Jordan, look, Magic and Bird saved the NBA. The NBA was flailing and was in big trouble, you know, in 1979, which is, by the way, the last year that the Washington professional basketball team was relevant. It was 1979. They played in the finals. It was their fourth finals of the decade, and they were trying to defend their title. But when Magic got drafted in the draft in 1980, um, he, he and Bird basically changed the league. You know, but Jordan took it to another level. Um, Jordan became, you know, one of the five, six, seven most recognizable faces on the planet. I actually thought, um, and I mentioned this to Tommy yesterday, that one of the, the takeaways for me was that something Steve Kerr said coolly, which was, you know, we never really got to know Michael. He li- he was living, essentially, I'm paraphrasing, living a completely different life than we were. You know, the demands on his time were totally different. And you could see that. You know, in many ways, I th- and I said this to Tom, in many ways, Jordan got along with older people better than he did his teammates, um, which... But 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 anyway, I, I thought the, the whole thing was that makes so total good. sense. That made total sense to me. So many of the things to me, not living any kind of a life like Michael Jordan, but seeing the, what I saw, and I only played nine years, but not, seven eight years in, you realize that players come and go, and I'm sure Michael was close with Scotty, but not as close as the people that lived around him and had to be around him every day, and his security team and his best friends and some of those people, it was those relationships were the ones that were going to stay. Players, Steve Kerr, he could have made friends with Steve Kerr, but they weren't going to be able to pay for Steve Kerr next year. So he was going to leave. You know, I just, that made sense to me. In my first three or four years, I was close to a lot of the players. And I think Jordan was as well. They traded somebody early. Charles Oakley. Was, Charles, Charles Oakley. Oakley. That was Jordan's guy. Yeah. And you start to sense that as a player, like, shit, they just got rid of my guy. And then you just you protect yourself from making those bonds sometimes with the players. Players yeah. aren't as reliable. And Jordan, I think, understood that, maybe even just subconsciously, and you make friends with the people that are. Back to um, the fact that you you didn't play with anybody that resembled Jordan. and Not, not Jordan, the, the, the player, Jordan, the competitor. And my... Um, my statement to you, which is, well, maybe that's a, re- a reason, at least in Washington, that you were never part of a winner. You know, I just started thinking, I mean, this has been the problem. You know, well, this is a symptom, but it's the chasing the wrong kind of people, you know, and players, you know, Jeff George, Bruce Smith, Albert Hainsworth, like, you know, the owner's infatuation over the years with straight losers, you know, at the end of their careers or just losers in general and and not understanding the, the the sort of personality flaws that some of these players they've signed over the years and and how that, you know, was destructive or certainly didn't allow for, you know, winning to develop and flourish. 
You know, this is the this is the key to any business, any sports team is picking the right people. And more than anything else, over the twenty years of Dan Snyder, more times than not, he's picked the wrong people. Kind of like that talent versus morals argument, but you got to have a couple guys with talent and morals. And morals, I don't mean necessarily not going to do anything, not going to drink a beer, but going to show up and work their guts out every day. But those those players have to be talented. They have to be your best players. Like you, we, I had, I played with guys that practice hard. James Thrash worked the way Michael Jordan worked. He just wasn't. Michael Jordan, right. he just didn't have that talent. I mean, there were guys that taught me how to work, and there were guys that worked hard. And Brian Kozlowski, my friend, practiced as hard as anybody. He just wasn't Michael Jordan. He was Bill Cartwright. <laughs> like, he was that best a role guy. So your best player has to be, has to push people. You know what else I thought was a little interesting is just, the Phil Jackson method. You would have loved to have played for somebody like that, right? Oh, yeah. I would have been all all into some of that center yourself stuff. And I'm not into that in real life, but I would have, I would have thought that would have been fun. And look, you get Michael Jordan to buy into what you do and Scotty, and then you get Kobe and Shaq. To, but the, the way he did things, right. I'm just interested. Well, Steve Kerr did it to some extent, but I'm interested in how well that works now. But it's also interesting why he couldn't do it in New York. Maybe he was just o- older and jaded at that point. But well, the well, um, you know, the other part of that is he, you know, he had look. Phil, there's something about Phil Jackson. Um, that was a big part of of winning as a coach. I don't think there's any doubt about it. Yes, he had Michael Jordan. Yes, he had Kobe Bryant and Shaq. You know, and in New York, he wasn't a coach in New York, but he. Um, th- this is where th- there was something that he enabled him to sort of put it all together and manage people. You know, I, I mentioned yesterday that the best thing that happened to Dennis Rodman in his in his life was to luck into Chuck Daly and Phil Jackson as coaches. And the reason that mm-hmm. I and the reason that I would think that you would have loved Phil Jackson, I think some of the stuff you would have rolled your eyes at, but I think you would have loved the fact that he was always sort of thinking and willing to sort of think outside the norms. You know, I mean Steve Kerr's statement about that final team meeting Cooley where he's got the tin can and the flame and he asks yeah. everybody to write stories and you know he says about Jordan's poem that he he, he didn't think Michael could go that deep emotionally, and then he takes all of those handwritten things and turns the lights off and lights the flame and walks out. And Steve Kerr called it one of the most powerful moments, you know, he's ever been a part of. You know, the, he, there was something about Jackson that, and, you know, just enabled him to, to, to lead people. I'm sorry? He didn't need to do That wasn't about the Bulls ever winning again. Right. That's who he, he was. about his guys. And when you have a bunch of egomaniacs, which any any professional organization is, you better be able to think outside the box a little bit because they're not all going to be on the same. You got to be a little bit odd. I think so. Yeah, m- maybe. 
Maybe you do like it's almost that charisma thing, you know, that 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 intangible when they say, you know, they call it the it factor, whatever. Like Phil Jackson had there was something about him that other people, bigger stars than him, looked at and said, Man, he's got something figured out that we don't. Like, he's how about go ahead? No, I, I just I think in life, whether it's in sports or in business, there's certain people that have that. And, you know, people follow them sometimes blindly. How about the episode where he had Tony Kukoc take the final shot instead of Scotty? Well, this is part of the conversation about Pippen here after the fact. Pippen's very upset about the way he was portrayed. He didn't like this. Um, and it's funny because at the end of this, I love Scotty Pippen, maybe even more I, than I did going into it. But there, I do too. Yeah, but there were, you know, there were incidents, you know, that, you know, the, you knew it at the time and Jordan said it at the time that, you know, that basically, first of all, the, the, the hesitation to, to get that off season surgery where he was in no rush to come back for the 97 season. Jordan was critical of that. Obviously the stain on his legacy is that he quit on his team in a playoff game with one and a half seconds left. Um, and you know, and there was a lot of criticism about his contract and maybe some embarrassment about his contract. But overall, I think what you learned about Pippen, if you didn't know this is a, he's one of the great players of all time, you know, in terms of combination offensive and defensive. And he was a good dude. He was the one that was well-liked, and, and, and his teammates knew in terms of the two superstars. Everybody knew and liked Scottie Pippen. I, I liked him more. I, I, I didn't know as much about Scottie, but I, I just learned what an incredible teammate he was and how impactful he was to Michael Jordan. I get where he could be upset. I mean, there's a couple times where it did make Scottie Pippen look at least compared to Michael Jordan, soft. You know, having to go in and get massages on the back and the last run and the early where he had a migraine and had, and sat out. And I don't know. But I, I can tell you this. When you know you're as good as Scotty, and they were because they almost made it to the finals without Jordan the next year. In what, 95, 96? Yeah, I mean, they made it to the conference semifinals. They made it to the conference semifinals. They won 55 games, and Pippen was a phenomenal player. But but Jordan didn't win it, didn't win without Pippen, and Pippen, obviously, in that one year, completely without Jordan, didn't win. Well, he can be mad all he wants. The Bulls were about, this thing was about Jordan, and the Bulls were Jordan. It was, that's what it was. Yeah, agreed. There's no dynasty, there's no... 10-part series that everyone in America watches. It's nothing without Michael Jordan. And you just can't, like, he wasn't Michael Jordan. So after we got done talking about the last dance yesterday, um, I did this on radio and then Tommy and I did it. Give me the the 10-part DC sports doc idea that you would have. And to me, the first one, and Tommy disagreed, and I'll tell you what he said in a moment, but to me, the rise and fall of RG3 and DC would, would fill up 10 episodes.
I mean, the Seattle game alone is an episode. The Baltimore and Cleveland games alone, you know, an episode. The all-in for week one off season is an episode. You know, the relation, the the meeting, the the relationship, how it deteriorated with the coaching staff, how it was enabled by the owner. I think it would be, especially if people were on record and were interviewed and were totally honest and forthright about what happened, I think it would be unbelievable. And by the way, not just for DC sports fans, for all sports fans, it would be great. Yeah, and you've been pitching this to me, and I don't think it's a ten-part series. That Tommy yeah, said, just, Tommy you know, said the was, same thing. I, How many parts is it? I think the way they did the Jordan stuff, I, I just don't think you're getting more than four to keep it really fascinating and really interesting. Um, I've been thinking about it. Because I said, you know, one thing that to me is really interesting is the rise of the Shanahan staff and where they came from. But I, I, I don't know if that's a 10-part series. What I do think... It doesn't be, have to be 10 parts. It has to be more than a 30 for 30. What I think you could get 10 out of, if you could get true honesty and this person would sit down and talk, would be what happened over the last 27 years to Washington Redskins. Well, that's what Tommy said. It's not 27. You know what? Basically, the title of it would be, you know, Dan Snyder's 20-year reign of terror. You know, that, that you know, how, how well, one... Yeah, you can't call it that. <laughs> I mean... Well, you could. Well, is he going to do that? Well, I don't know. I mean, do you have to, do you have to tell him what the title he's is? Be Michael, but he's got to be Michael Jordan in this series. And Oof. I don't mean the success story. I mean the main character. Yeah, but but it, okay, that's fine. But for him to be the main character, there has to be some self awareness about what happened oh, I, to this franchise under his stewardship. No, I I understand that, and it, I'm also well aware that this isn't going to happen. <laughs> right, but because when you watch the the Jordan series, everything Jordan says, they go find a teammate, and they're like, "Yep, that's exactly what happened." Yep. Uh-huh. Yep, 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 yep. Jordan's one, his recall of all of this is unbelievable. Yeah. His recall of how he was going to play somebody in 1992 is beyond me. I, I, it's insane. And then his recall of all of the events that happened and all of the players and the personalities and why he did and said certain things to certain people in certain moments is insanity. He's That's crazy. You would have to have that level of truthfulness, which I don't, I think is going to be hard, but if you could get it, it'd be really interesting to see why, why it went the way it did and how it changed every couple of years to why it then went that way. And you know what I'm saying? Oh yeah. I mean, you know, and, and it's funny because some of the ideas I had for lengthy documentaries would just basically be folded into this 10-parter. You know, like how how Jack Kent Cook, you know, why Jack Kent Cook didn't leave his son the team. Um, you know, how Dan Snyder raised, you know, all of that capital because he didn't have $800 million. Um, how he raised all that capital as a 34-year-old to buy the team and become the youngest owner in NFL history. To, you know, the RG3, you know, era would be part of, you know, that that documentary. Um, look, you could do it without him, but you're right, it would be much better with him. 
But it is, and, and I've said this many times, and I don't know if I've said it to you necessarily, I probably have, but it is one of the more remarkable falls of a sports franchise uh, in the 21st century. Because at the turn of the century, the Redskins were one had one of the most fiercely loyal fan bases of any team in all of sports. And two decades later, they've got 12,000 people showing up for a game, and half of them, if not more than half, are rooting for the opponent. It's really an amazing deterioration of such a great consumer product with an with a tremendously loyal following. So it would be and we know that there are so many stories that led to this and so many events that led to it. It would be great. I think it would be beyond just a Redskin fan base thing. I think NFL fans who obviously have seen the fall of the Redskins over the last two two decades would be very interested in it. You're right. That and Tommy's right. That's that's the one. That's the the ten part you know DC sports documentary where you can work in all of the other stuff as part of it. I, that, that's to me what it is. And ultimately, when I look at it and I have. Very from a close seat, I've looked at it sitting back. The fan thing is part of it, but in my world of being an athlete, how you don't fall into winning eleven games one time in that entire and you might not win a Super Bowl. That's hard to do. You might you might not make it to a championship game. You might make it to only one. But how you don't fall into winning eleven games in any given year? Like, there's a lot of luck that goes into schedules and football and who gets hurt when you're playing them I and how. It's how one of those years you don't win eleven games. Yeah, it's it's incredible. It's hard. I, I just, it's it, hard it's to do. Not luck. It, it's not. It's not tying it together the right way. And and why and how to me? Because there's a why and how. It just, you know what I mean? There was reasoning behind a lot of what went on. Whether obviously it wasn't the right reasoning, but there was reasoning. You, you know, don't... I want to hear it. Yeah, I mean, the the funny thing is, um, you know, the league is designed for bad teams to have that one really good season. And the Redskins have never had that really one good season under Dan Snyder. They haven't had it. Every other every other organization's pretty much had, a, a, I think, a, a better than 10-win season except for the Redskins over those two decades, and they've only won one playoff game. I mean, if you want to count the 99 season, which was his first as owner, you know, with it hadn't put his fingerprints on the franchise yet, you know, it's two playoff wins. But, you know, there, there, there is some bad luck involved in it. Now, you know, you make your own good luck, and you sort of, you know, uh, you, you sort of make your own bad luck, too, but, um, you know, they were close to winning more than one playoff game in January of 2000. You guys were certainly close to winning more than one playoff game in 2005, had a legitimate shot. There was probably one move, you know, you could probably pick out a season like 2016 or 2015 or 2012 and say, you know, if Griffin doesn't get hurt in 2012, that's a potential, you know, two playoff win postseason. If you added a better defensive coordinator in 2016, maybe you're able to win 10 plus games um, with how good the offense was that year. You know, there were a couple of very closes, but they never got over the hump. Right. So and you never won 11 games. 
like one year you you've got to have a good enough <laughs> team at least in the season, and you got to play. You got to find a way to play teams that have their starting quarterback hurt in one season to win eleven games once. Well, not only that, the the two 10-win seasons required ridiculous winning streaks at the end just to get to 10. Like, you know, know, in 2005 and in 2012, which are the two 10-win seasons, now in 99 they were they were a 10-win team as well, but whatever. That I, I almost don't count that as a Snyder year, but it was. He was technically the owner at that point. But in 2005, you guys had to win five in a row to get to 10, and in 2012, seven in a row. But no five. Team. I think we lost to the Chargers in overtime at home. We lost yeah. to Tampa when we shouldn't with the All Stop play that we shouldn't have lost to Tampa right. on the road in the season. Right. Like that, there was some bad luck that year to not have that be an eleven win team. We've had a tough game with the Raiders that we should have won at home. Like there were games we should have won that year. It wasn't. We didn't get beat badly a bunch of times. There was no game that we couldn't have won that year. We could have won any game that year. You, I, I don't so. even recall you. Oh, the the um the Wellington Mara game was the one game that year. I think that was that year that were that you got beat badly, but that was it. When when Wellington Mara died right before the Redskins right. went to the Meadowlands and played the Giants, and I think you lost like thirty nine nothing or something. But but other than that, you know, every loss, if I recall, was super close, super close. You also came back from 13 nothing down against the Cowboys in that Monday Night Miracle. So I wanted to get to something um, next, um, and, and then that is something that Ben Standig did on The Athletic, and I did it on the radio this morning. He basically came up with a way to identify the best players on the Redskins roster currently. Um, and his way was to consider upside, current production, and then expansion draft mentality. Like if you're an expansion team and you got to pick, you know, one player off of the Redskins roster, who would it be? And so that's what I sort of went with this morning. It's like presently good, but also future going to be really good too. Who would you pick? And I had a top five that I counted down from five to one. Do you want to hear it? I mean, I do want to hear it. I'm just wondering if it sways. Yeah, go first. Well, I didn't know if you were ready. If you're ready, I'll let you go first. But I was will I was willing to go first so that you could think about it because I'm hitting this with you without giving you any preparation time. No, I'll let you go. Okay. So number five on my list of if I were picking players off the Redskins roster as like an expansion team. Um, is Landon Collins. I don't think Landon Collins got enough credit last year for the kind of player he turned into. I I hated the offseason, the preseason stuff of constantly talking about Dave Gettleman and his former team and the obsession he had with it. Bottom line is... He was really good. And I think, you know, you you made the point that, you know, people are saying that he's a versatile safety, and that's great. But what he what he really excels at is is around the line of scrimmage. And we saw that. Like I think we saw a really good in the box safety. He's number five on my list. Number four was Terry McLaurin. And I've thought a lot about it what you've told me about McLaurin on the podcast in the past, which is he's definitely a number two, and who knows? He, he'd be a number one for a lot of teams, including this team. But everything about him reeks of sort of the kind of player the Redskins haven't had in a while, like truly gifted in terms of speed and route running ability and, and everything else. But then beyond that, 
you know, a real pro at a young age. You know, this guy is smart. He's professional. Um, he's had some success early. He's going to be a good teammate. He's going to be a leader. I put McLaurin at four. I put John Allen at three. And the two players that I had ahead of him at number two, I had Deron Payne. I think you're going to disagree with me on this. But to me, Deron Payne is the most, has the biggest upside other than my number one player. Um, of the defensive players. He is he is super athletic. He is big, he's strong. He's only 22 years old, and I just have a feeling that he could potentially turn into a star. Um, I don't know if he's got the same commitment level that John Allen and Matt Ioannidis have as examples of of the other, you know, really good young interior defensive linemen, but I love the way Dron uh, Payne flashes. Like he his flash is bigger than Allen or Ioannidis's. And then I had Chase Young, number one. Like, I, I just – there, there isn't a player on the roster, even though he hasn't played it down in the NFL, that has more potential than Chase Young. So that was my top five. Yeah, that's a good top five. I'm going to go about this without looking at it in terms of position as much not contract this year and Michael Jordan factor because that just changed how I look at everything. Um, uh, Chase Young's number one. That's just, I think that's an easy one. I think number two, three, four, I'll get a little bit skewed, but I'm going to take John Allen at number two. He does have that badass. I'm going to call you out. I'm going to challenge you. I'm going to work hard. I, I don't, I need to see a year where he's, a little more like Aaron Donald to really believe that he would be a number two on a lot of teams or a number three on a lot of teams talent-wise, but he's got that. I think at three, I'd take Brandon Sheriff. I just, I've watched him practice every day last year, and I didn't, you know I didn't love this, the system scheme that they were in, and I, I think Brandon did like it. But I think if you wanted a menacing guard who could just absolutely crush people in the run game and you started running some more stretch stuff and coached it a little different, I, he can do whatever you want him to do, and he's, he's a badass. I think at four, I'd take Terry. Uh, and a lot of that comes from who he is as a guy, knowing who he is as a guy, what he stands for, how he works, how much better he's going to be. And... Can I give a guy the ball when it truly matters? Yes, absolutely. And then I'm going to just throw a coin between Payne and, and Landry. Collins, you mean? Or call, yeah, Landry. Payne and Collins. If you had to make me pick, I'd pick Landon, I think, just because I think Landon is more of a we-got-to-win kind of guy. I'm not, I know I'm not saying Duran isn't, but I just want to see it daily. Am I right, am I right about Payne, though, that in terms of talent, I mean, you said Allen, but that Payne's talent is pretty, you know, that his upside's huge? You'll see it 100% this year in a 4-3 defense. He, Payne's not a nose. You don't think he? Well, he's more of a nose than any other player they've had since twenty ten. Yeah, that's because that's because that's how good he is. Right. And that honestly, 
and he's a hard worker. He's a good teammate, good player. I, I, this is coming off the Jordan thing, but I'm factoring Jordan factor, and John Allen has that. Um, Payne could be a big time dude this year. He could. He's not a nose. He's not best suited at nose. Yeah. We both left Matt Ioannidis out of our top five. Is that a mistake? Well, he's going to be in your top eight for the Redskins. I mean, the truth of the matter is, of those three interior young defensive linemen, Ioannidis has been the most productive. Oh, I'm well aware of that. Why is he so good? He works hard. Is he the strongest player on the team? I don't know. He's stronger than Deron Payne. Deron Payne's pretty strong. He also got to play, like, if you put Ioannidis at nose last year and Deron at end, it might have been a little different. But Matt Ioannidis does get a lot of sacks in passing situations and does put the pocket in passing situations as well as any of them. All right, last thing, because I know you got to run. Um, complete this following sentence. The most random thing you've done during this last two and a half months of this pandemic is what? Two baby raccoons in my garage. <laughs> well, found three. The, tried to get the mom to take them back. She wouldn't. So you're fa- you're fathering you're, you're fathering baby raccoons in your house. You're you're being a parent too. No, you didn't father they both, them. They both they both died. Oh my god, they did. And then having to explain that to my daughter oh. and burying them. I and honestly, I don't know a lot about that. And there's you can't have them in Virginia. But what am I going to do? Like take these. What are you going to do with two Dale baby raccoons that the mom... We found them in the barn the next day. We were trying to take them back to the mom. They were freezing. So I went home and bought kitten milk and tried to save them. I don't know what, what any normal person's supposed to do. And so we bottle-fed them. One died after a couple of days. And the other one made it like 27 days. It hadn't opened his eyes. It had been coughing. <sighs> Maybe I should have taken it to a, a vet. I didn't know if it was sick or not, to be honest with you, because I just don't know what it's... How would you, how would you take a wild raccoon to a vet? I don't know. I thought it was fine, and then, like, it was really weird. They both died within a matter of hours. Like, when both of them went from being fine to a matter of hours, us staying up late, trying to do everything. We, I don't know, man. It was a weird deal. Um, it was really random. It was really sad. We tried our best. We tried really hard. Well, you know what? The fact that you tried and you, you did the right thing, I think, <laughs> I think... Um, is, well, what, should I just left them? I don't know. Would the mother have come back and gotten them? No, we did. We left them for twenty four hours. I mean, we left them. They it didn't come. It didn't. They left them on the floor of this barn of my barn. I found them in. And if you had put them out like into the woods or whatever, they would have obviously been. You know. Well, they wouldn't have made it then. Yeah, they wouldn't have made it then either. So you did the right thing, and that's that's what you tell your two kids is that you guys really tried and it's sad. It's, you know, an unusual situation to be put into, but you did your best and you did the right thing. Well, and they understand that, you know? Yeah. So they were anyway. cute though. You sent me pictures. I, I mean, again, I, it's not every day that I talk to somebody that, you know, has pet raccoons and you've had legitimate pet raccoons living in your house before you started to have kids, um, which was odd. But odd. Well, we found we, my dad had found one in Wyoming. He had a pet raccoon. 
All right, you're breaking up because I know you have to go somewhere. Thanks for doing this. I'll talk to you. Uh, I'll talk to you later. All right. See you, buddy. See you. All right. Good to catch up with Cooley. Uh, I know his phone was getting a little bit uh, dicey there at the end. Um, if you were to guess on average how many days people in the U.S. have to wait to see a doctor, what would you say? A week, maybe. Actually, on average, people have to wait around 29 days to see a doctor in major U.S. cities, basically a month. If you're dealing with a condition like erectile dysfunction, you want treatment ASAP. That's why our friends at Roman have spent years building a digital platform that can connect you with a doctor licensed in your state, all from the comfort of your home. Roman makes it convenient to get the treatment you need on your schedule. Just grab your phone or computer, complete a free online visit, and you'll hear back from a U.S. licensed physician within 24 hours. And if the doctor decides that treatment is right for you, Roman's Pharmacy can ship your medication to you with free two-day shipping. You'll also get unlimited follow-ups with your doctor anytime you have questions or just want to adjust your treatment plan. With Roman, there are no commitments and you can cancel anytime. So if you're struggling with ED, go to get GetRoman.com. That's GetRoman.com. Use my promo code SHEAN for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. That's GetRoman.com, promo code SHEAN, S-H-E-E-H-A-N, for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. All right, I want to get to the Cody Latimer story um, as it continues to develop. Um, and is interesting from the perspective of what the Redskins should do and how they should handle it. Cody Latimer, for those of you that are just hearing about the story for the first time or haven't heard the updated details, was a receiver who played in New York last year. The Redskins signed him as a free agent. They signed him to a very minimal deal, one year, just over a million dollars, you know, like $138,000 guaranteed. Um, you know, going into this, Latimer, given – you know, Terry McLaurin and Kelvin Harmon and what they drafted, you know, there's the possibility Cody Latimer might not even make the team. Um, but he's a veteran and he's 27 years old and he's played six years in the league and he's played for the Broncos and the Giants and he hasn't had, you know, the true breakout year. But somebody likes something about Cody Latimer, whether it was Kyle Smith or Ron Rivera or Scott Turner. Somebody, you know, saw something in Cody Latimer that made sense. He was a veteran wide receiver. They've got a bunch of young wide receivers on the team. Um, and he was signed. Well, over the weekend, many of you know, he was arrested in Colorado um, for weapons and assault charges. At the time the story broke, there was minimal information, and then the information started to come out and get more detailed. The details included that Latimer got into an altercation and fired a gun after a, a poker game. At a, According to the report, or according to some reports, at the house of his best friend. Now, his attorney had a very interesting statement um, that came, uh, I guess it was Monday, at the hearing. Latimer's attorney, Harvey Steinberg, told the court that he has been contacted or he had been contacted by law enforcement concerning an investigation of a sexual assault of Latimer's four-year-old son that was allegedly perpetrated by one of the individuals at the poker game on the night in question. 
Latimer was uh, was arrested at 3.15 a.m. Saturday morning. He's been ordered to return for a July 24th court date. He's facing charges of assault in the second degree, menacing, illegal discharge of a firearm, and prohibited use of weapons and reckless endangerment. Steinberg, his attorney, told the court that the allegations concerning the shooting incident occurred at about the same time and location as the alleged sexual assault. So obviously there's a lot more coming in this case, and we will likely hear either more before July 24th, or we will certainly hear a lot more about it on July 24th at the next court date uh, regarding this incident. But there's more to this story, and I indicated a little bit about the more to the story yesterday on the podcast, but I want to play for you um, a vid- uh, something that appeared recently. It's a video on YouTube that was forwarded to me. Um, it was Cody Latimer three days before the Redskins signed Cody Latimer. Um, it's a YouTube meeting between him and his pastor at his church. And Latimer describes um, a situation about, you know, taking his own life the night before, Um, talking about his relationship with God, talking about being, you'll hear it, he's he's a confused young man. He talks about how he nearly took his life the night before, but he called his pastor. His pastor showed up, um, was able to help him. Um, this is about a minute and a half from about a six to seven minute rambling um, from Cody Latimer. Again, this is three days before the Redskins actually signed him. I doubt that they saw this video at the time, and maybe they didn't know about the condition that he was in um, mentally at that point. Um, but listen to it. You'll hear a very confused young man um, who you know, is struggling with you know his relationship with God, struggling with you know, probably depression, I'm projecting there because he doesn't say it, but the fact that he was on the verge, potentially, at least he he says he was on the verge the night before um, this particular uh, discussion with his pastor uh, took place and was videotaped, um, you know, he appears to be a guy that's that's hurting right now, or certainly was when this uh, video was taken. Here it is. It's kind of weird uh, <laughs> telling you this, but uh, last night, um, uh... I had a, a episode of wild, wild breakdown. You know, like I said, this is a shell. You know, emotionally inside, there's so much that's going on. And like I said, my faith is tested. You know, the, last night I was sitting, sitting around just thinking about sad, taking, you know, done it multiple times, taking my own life. And it's weird at this moment. You know, I drove to the church down the street from the hotel I'm staying at. You know, and, you know, I didn't know what to do. I got on my knees, pray, surrender, you know, because when the times are rough, I have a problem with when everything going good, I'm praising him, I'm praising him. But when things are going bad, I just seem to forget about it and let it go. And that's that's not the you know right way. And I was blessed last night. Uh, you know, I was sitting there in the church parking lot, like, I'm over this life. There's too much going on. I don't know what I'm going to do. You know, someone told me to text you faster. And it's kind of crazy. It wasn't at this church. I was at another church sitting in the parking lot. And he, you know, pastor rushed over to sit and comfort me and talk with me and be with me and give me words of wisdom. You know, and I you know, cried to him. I've been, you know, a lot of crying. And I uh, just told him, I, I think I'm just lost. I don't know my purpose anymore. I never figured out my purpose. What is my purpose that God wants for me? You know, I'm so dependent on my life as being a football player, athlete. But it's like... What am I doing? What is this really my life? Is that what I, who I am? That am I classified by God? No, I'm just an athlete. I'm like, no, no, that ain't it. You know, so I prayed and 
ask him for like and asked you like you know could you help me find my purpose it goes on and on it didn't stop there it went on for another three four minutes or so um that was recorded uh with his pastor at, at presumably the pastor's church in colorado on march 22nd in fact the, the name of the church was edge church um first service it says on the youtube heading uh, and it was recorded on 3-22-20, so March 22nd, um, 2020. It was three days later that the Redskins announced the signing of Cody Latimer in free agency. Um, and the Redskins, you know, as part of the story after they signed him, you know, they discussed that Cody Latimer's experience would provide some leadership and experience for their young receiving corps. Um, and that's one of the reasons that they signed him. Uh, he had played with the Giants, had played with the Broncos, had not played with the Panthers, so there wasn't any direct experience with Ron Rivera or Scott Turner with Cody Latimer. But anyway, three, day, uh, three days following this admission that he was considering taking his own life in the parking lot of a church, the Redskins signed him. So it's obviously, you know, a sensitive subject. And then you have this incident from over the weekend in Colorado. Um, and boy, you know, if his four-year-old son uh, was sexually assaulted, and that those are the allegations his uh, his attorney has made uh, an allegation that, that the law enforcement is investigating that that may have happened. Obviously, any of us, especially parents, but you don't even have to be a parent. You, you, I don't know, you know, almost, almost anything at that point would be justifiable. I think a lot of people feel that way. Um, so this is a young man who's got a lot of issues in his life right now. I don't think there's any doubt about that. He's 27 years old. Um, and you know, he's been a football player and he played at the university of Indiana. Um, and you know, where I want to take this in terms of the conversation is what the Redskins should do. You know, the Redskins are not one of these on solid ground franchises. You know, we know that there is a culture change that has to take place, that Ron Rivera is, you know, attempting to, you know, he's undergoing it right now. He's, he's attempting to change the culture of the organization from very bad to something much better. And, you know, Cody Latimer, there's, I'm sure, significant sympathy for Cody Latimer. And I think Ron Rivera, one of the reasons he's respected and one of the reasons he gets along with most of his players and has is that he is an empathetic guy. He does um, understand, you know, difficult situations um, and works through them with players. But Cody Latimer's not even been in a practice yet. I don't even know if he's passed his physical yet. You know, remember, some of these free agent signings aren't official until a physical is passed. But assuming that, you know, he, it, he's on the team, what do you do if you're the Redskins? You know, like you've got so many issues, you've got so many things to solve, so many problems to solve, so many things to change. This was a guy that at best was a fringe player on your roster, may not have made your roster. And I understand right now during the time that we're living in, you know, the publicity, I don't think it's hurting the Redskins right now. They've got a new group. Um, you certainly want this young man to get help. You certainly want him to be represented um, by the best of the best, especially if this allegation about his four-year-old son um, is true. 
you know, cutting him and then finding out that he was innocent of the charges. And one of the reasons he was innocent of the charges is that there was a a, a sexual assault of a four-year-old son, his four-year-old son. You know, it wouldn't make the team look that great if they cut him loose. Um, you know, but at the same time, you know, this really, as selfish as it sounds, I'm sure the team wishes it weren't their issue right now with all of the other fish they have to fry. But I'm wondering if there's a way to support him but not have him on the roster, like to release him but to simultaneously say, hey, we want to help you in any way we can. You know, if you need great representation, if you need help, you know, if you need a a, a psychiatrist, if you need a psychologist, if you need therapy, if you're not getting that, we want to help you. You know, but it's a a complex situation that they don't really need on their plate right now. They got enough of them. They, They definitely, right, definitely didn't know about this videotape and about this admission three days before they signed him. They didn't know about this before they signed him. They wouldn't do that. They wouldn't have signed him if they knew that this young man was troubled in the moment. You wish the best for him. You want him to get the best representation legally. You want him to get the best help psychologically. And at the same time, you know, being completely honest, you really wish it weren't your organization's issue right now. There are other organizations in better position to sort of take this on as a closer to front burner issue. The Redskins have too many of them right now. I mean, I know it's harsh, but I would certainly think and certainly understand if they're thinking behind the scenes, God, why did we sign him? Why didn't we know about this before? You know, I'm not saying the Redskins are the only team that wouldn't have picked up on this before. You know, who knows? I mean, you do the, the best you can in due diligence before you sign somebody, uh, including talking to him. Um, but it's a difficult situation for them right now, the Latimer situation. It'll be interesting to see how they handle it. I think right now it'd be hard for them to cut him, uh, cut him loose prior to that jo- July 24th court hearing to find out how this court case proceeds. Now, maybe there's a way with the physical of getting out of the contract commitment. It's not the 138000 in guaranteed money that they're concerned about, hopefully. Hopefully they're concerned about getting him help, but at the same time, you know, making sure that a roster spot is available to somebody that they think has a better chance of being ready to play for them. Um, anyway, uh, that's the update to that particular story. Um, there were a, a few other uh, stories that broke Redskins related. Number one, uh, and it was Burgundy Blog, I think, who broke this story first. I saw it uh, on JP's um, Twitter timeline here moments ago that Antonio Gandy Golden, the Redskins' fourth round pick, tested positive for COVID 19, but he's been self quarantined and asymptomatic, according to sources. JP credits Burgundy Blog for being out in front of this story on his podcast. Um, basically, I guess this was found out because Jerry Falwell, who's the head of Liberty University, where Gandy Golden played, basically outed Gandy Golden on Fox News, um, but talked about, 
you know, somebody, an athlete at Liberty who had left school early to prepare for the NFL draft testing positive. Well, the Liberty player that I guess was picked in the NFL draft was Antonio Gandy-Golden. So uh, JP was able to confirm that uh, that information. So Gandy-Golden becomes, right, the first Redskin, known Redskin, to test positive for COVID-19. He's not the first NFL player to test positive for COVID-19, but is the first Redskin player to test positive for COVID-19. That leads me into this conversation and the report yesterday that came out from the league's chief medical officer um, about where the NFL is on testing and COVID-19 and a plan to deal with this. And it is interesting, and Tommy and I talked about it yesterday, and I said, you know, all of these leagues have to have a plan to move forward um, with, uh, with positive tests. You know, you cannot go into restarting a season or starting a season from scratch thinking that a positive test could shut down a team or, or the league overall. That's not going to work. So the chief medical officer of the NFL, Alan Sills, um, basically said that he acknowledged and the league acknowledges that more likely than not, they're going to have positive cases that will arise. And he said, quote, we fully expect that we will have positive cases. It won't be a surprise when we get new positive cases that arise. Our challenge is to identify them as quickly as possible and prevent spread to any other participants. We're working very diligently on that, and we'll have some detailed plans at a later time. Um, Now, part of what Alan Sills, the NFL's chief medical officer, said is that they don't want to be the business or the sports league that takes up tests that should be earmarked for healthcare workers or for people who are more at risk than maybe a younger NFL player. And the availability of testing is going to be a huge key to their plan. You know, we, we heard Dr. Fauci a few weeks back say, look, when it comes to the NFL, he thinks that they should be tested on Saturday and then on Sunday morning before the game. And if somebody tests positive, they've got to sit out. They've got to self-quarantine. Well, that's a lot of tests. You know, for one team, 53 players, count, you know, another 20 coaches, count probably another 25 to 30 essential personnel. Let's just put the number at 100 plus getting tested twice per weekend on Saturday before the game and on Sunday morning before the game. You know, now all of a sudden you need 200 tests times 32 teams. And that's for one week of play. And that doesn't include potentially in-week testing. And Sills acknowledged that they don't want to be the business or the sports league that takes up tests that should be dedicated towards more significant people in 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 our in our world right now healthcare workers test testing available for people who are more vulnerable so it seems to be that there are two things at work here with respect to the NFL and other leagues one the widespread availability of testing that shouldn't be you know earmarked for another um, group of people 
uh, versus, you know, what you would call non-essential people, which would be athletes in sports leagues. Um, Number two is having a true protocol and a true process for what happens when there's a positive case. Clearly, they're not going to start playing until they've got a plan to deal with the positive cases that will inevitably arise, as Dr. Sills said. You know, what those, what that plan is, they said they're still working on it, and they're working with other leagues, you know, which will face similar issues, and they've got to come up with something, and they will have a detailed plan at a later time. But, you know, baseball is going to have a detailed plan before the NFL is going to need a, a detailed plan. And basketball will, too, will need a, a detailed plan, and probably hockey as well before the NFL. The NFL will be able to, as they have already, be able to sit back and learn. You know, the NFL wasn't pressed into making significant decisions with respect to playing games based on the calendar and when this thing broke. Anyway, um, interesting stuff there. As was, by the way, since we're talking about the NFL, um, something that we haven't really spent any time talking about on the podcast this week. And that is this proposal that the owners floated out last Friday about minority head coach and general manager hirings. What they floated out on Friday essentially was a plan that would incent owners to hire minority coaches and general managers. And the incentive would deal with an improved position in the NFL draft. If you miss this, listen to this. If this was the, fl- the plan that was being considered, was floated out for the purposes, by the way, of gauging reaction, as, we found, as we've now f- found out, uh, and I'll explain that in a moment. But basically, the plan that was floated out there would be that a team, if they hired a minority head coach, would get their third-round pick improved by six spots. So they'd move up six spots in the third round with their next third round pick in the draft. And if they hired a minority general manager, they'd improve their position in the third round by 10 spots. Now, yesterday, they pulled that proposal off the table. And they say and they say they're looking, you know, Goodell said, we're looking into, you know, other uh, possible um, steps that the league can take to improve minority hiring. You know, from a coach's standpoint, two years ago, eight out of the 32 NFL coaches were minorities. Going into 2020, four are. So they're looking at this trend, which isn't a good trend. In 2016, 17, and 18, uh, 25% of the head coaches were minority head coaches. That's a significant percentage compared to the past. So it was trending in the right direction. This year, four are minorities, by the way, one of them being Ron Rivera. And only two of the 32 general managers are minorities. They want that changed. Now, with respect to the plan that they floated out on Friday, ridiculous. Like, I mean, first of all, it was not received well, especially by African-American or minority writers, media members, um, and fans, they thought it was insulting that uh, you know you'd have to incent an owner with draft positioning to hire a minority. You know, most of the people that I read or heard said it should be based on merit. I agree. Um, it's also um, ridiculous to think that an owner would be incented 
to hire a minority coach or minority um, general manager based on improved draft positioning in the third round of the draft. Like, how wasn't that vetted better? Didn't they know that would go over like a lead balloon? Seriously. I mean, that's ridiculous. Would would you really hire? I mean, think of this this hypothetical. An owner says to himself, let me hire um, a lesser candidate that's a minority, but uh, I get six positions better in the third round of the next draft. That'll do it. Or let's just say I've got two equal candidates. One's a minority, one's a non-minority. Uh, I'll, I'll hire the minority because I'm going to get six spots higher in the draft in the third round. I, I think it's a very complex discussion. You know, you're, you're, you've got many owners who have hired minorities. You've also had uh, owners who have given up too quickly on a minority. You know, just recently, um, Arizona and the Bidwells gave up too quickly on Steve Wilkes. One year, Steve Wilkes got to be the head coach. You know, it's not that we haven't seen non-minority head coaches get fired after a year. Uh, Marty Schottenheimer got from, got fired after one year here. Um, but the the point is is that there should be more time allotted to almost any coach, really, minority or non-minority. Now, one of the things that they are working on with respect to the Rooney Rule is increasing the number of interviews required before hiring a new head coach or new general manager. Instead of one minority interview candidate uh, from outside the organization or inside the organization, they want to increase that to two. Well, I, I think that's something that everybody should agree on. Is that going to make the difference? Who knows? But from the jump, it was about giving minorities more access to the owners, allowing them to interview for jobs that they weren't even being interviewed for before. And it has made a difference to a certain degree, maybe not at the level that most would want, but requiring two interviews doubles that that you know interview output. I mean, let's get more interviews, more exposure, not only for the interviewees getting more experience in the process, but more exposure to owners who could be predisposed to not hiring a minority. Uh, not an easy answer there, really, overall, unless you're going to force minority hiring, which you can't you're not going to do in a private industry. Um, the, uh, there was some good news Redskins related. I can't believe it took me this long to get to it, but Dexter Manley, according to Rigo, um, in Rigo's podcast, which, um, you can hear on redskins.com, Rigo, the diesel podcast, Riggins reported on his podcast yesterday that Dexter is doing much better. If you missed this story, Dexter Manley, uh, has been suffering from COVID-19 from the coronavirus. He was hospitalized on May 2nd. There was sort of some, you know, discouraging news as it related to Manly over the weekend. Daryl Grant and even his kids, you know, talked about, you know, the alarm of having his father, having their father be sick and having COVID-19. Rigo said on his podcast yesterday, quote, he's doing much better. I'm not sure he was ever really that ill, but his oxygen levels were a little low. They put him on oxygen. He was never on a ventilator. All of this stuff is improving as we speak. He's slowly but steadily making a re- recovery against the virus that's been ravaging the entire world, closed quote, that from Riggins. So that was really, really good news. Um, by the way, 
uh, I would encourage everybody to listen to Diana Rossini, who was on the radio show with this with me this morning, at the team nine eighty dot com, at at the team nine eighty on Twitter, the team nine eighty dot com, the team nine eighty app. Um, you can listen to it; it's right there in its entirety. Um, you know, you don't have to get to it today, but I, I like Diana. Diana's a hustler, man. She is a really good reporter who's broken a lot of news um, here in D.C. when she was on Channel 4 and also at ESPN. But she told a story that I wanted to share with everybody, and that is her big break. You know, she was here as a reporter. Dan Helley was at Channel 4. Carol Maloney, others um, were at Channel 4 at the time. And um, she was a reporter, and she was at training camp, and, and she really hadn't gotten comfortable covering the Redskins and covering a football team, which is something that she had you know minimal experience doing. Um, and she got a call from D'Angelo Hall one day, and D'Angelo Hall called her to encourage her. He had recognized her and recognized that you know she was just you know figuring it out. And he saw something in her and, and her, you know, Diana's a hustler, man. She's a tough Jersey girl who gets after it, um, which is one of the reasons I've always liked Diana and respected her work um, over the years and have had her on the podcast and have had her on the radio show a bunch. Um, but she, um, D'Angelo Hall recognized something in her and he, he called her up and he said, stay at it. You know, you've got the right instincts, basically. And then he gave her a story. He gave her the story um, of him signing a new contract. You know, and those new contract stories are always news when it comes to the Redskins or a a big professional sports team. He gave her the, the details of the contract, and that was her first story that she broke. And she sent it back to the station, and she wasn't even sure what she had. Um, that's how inexperienced she was at the time. Um, but it came, I think, in 2014 that he signed a new four-year contract. It was a four-year, $17 million contract. I looked it up. He had all the details, gave it to Diana, and Diana broke the story. And NBC4 put it on their, you know, uh, I guess at the time, maybe their social media account. And, and they had the news that night on, their, on their, their sports cast, and they were the first to break it. And she said that that was the beginning for her. And that's where she sort of found her niche, really, as a reporter and one who, you know, got scoop and broke news. And there's another story she told about Tim Tebow. Uh, prior to going to ESPN, she was being considered by ESPN to be, to be a reporter, um, and they decided at the last minute not to hire her because she had reported that Tim Tebow was going to sign a deal with the Philadelphia Eagles, and he hadn't done that. And get this, Adam Schefter, the godfather of ESPN NFL News, said internally, not in not attempting to embarrass Diana publicly by tweeting this, but he sent out, I guess, an email to everybody at ESPN saying, this is not true. This is not a, a, an accurate story. And ESPN backed off in the moment hiring Diana. Well, Diana stuck to her guns. She called her source with the Philadelphia Eagles, and they said, just relax, it's going to happen. And it, was, it wasn't happening as fast as she was hoped, had hoped it would happen. 
And to make a long story short, a week later, the Eagles announced that they, that they had signed Tim Tebow to a one-year deal. This was in 2015. And when it happened, ESPN changed their mind and hired Diana and said, good work. And I said to her, that must have been a tough week. And she said, it was really tough because, you know, and Tommy will, will tell you this, and I've had uh, limited experience with this as well. Sometimes you have news and you, you break the news, but um, it's news about something that's about to happen or will happen. And in the moment, that news is true based on the source, but it could change. You know, the Eagles could have changed their mind or, you know, perhaps right before Tebow signed the deal, there was something in the contract and that led to something else and the deal fell apart. You know, it doesn't mean that she didn't have it dead on in the moment, but in that particular case, if Tim Tebow didn't sign a contract with the Eagles, she would have never been hired by ESPN and Adam Schefter would have been right. Uh, she spent 35 minutes with me on the radio this morning and talked a lot about uh, herself personally, and that's what we've been doing in some of these interviews recently on radio. There are no games to talk about, um, but she was a prolific, prolific high school athlete um, in Bergen County, New Jersey, and she talked a, a lot about that as well. Um, by the way, one other thing, too. I had Gary Williams on the radio show yesterday, and I may have told Tommy this yesterday, I forget, uh, but DeMatha, it's funny, tweeted this out um, earlier today. Um, Gary said to me that his biggest recruiting regret was not recruiting Victor Oladipo out of DeMatha. Um, I think he had told me that before personally, but never on the air. Um, but he told me that on the radio show yesterday. But in 2010, if you recall, um, Oladipo was a senior at DeMatha. That was the year Maryland... Um, won the ACC regular season title, Gravis Vasquez's senior year, Landon Milbourne, Eric Hayes, their senior year. They got to the second round, lost that heartbreaker to Corey Lucius in Michigan State. If not, that may have been a Final Four team. It was a great second-round game, and Corey Lucius hit a, a ridiculous buzzer beater to knock Maryland out in the second round of the tournament. Um, Gary said that he was in a gym at DeMatha one day, um, and Shashevsky was there, and Tom Crean was there, and uh, I think I think he said JT3 was there, and others were there. And Oladipo didn't play well, didn't shoot it well, and he didn't look like a very good shooter. And Gary Williams didn't offer Oladipo a scholarship. And the only person in the gym that day that did was Tom Crean, the coach at Indiana. And Gary said it was basically his biggest recruiting mistake and regret. And he said the reason why is that he shouldn't have been influenced by Oladipo not being a good shooter because Oladipo was clearly a great competitor and a good player and a, and a tremendous athlete. But one of the things Gary prided himself on was identifying the competitor, the Juan Dixon, the Steve Blake the Gravis Vasquez, and those players we know were perfect for Gary Williams. He got the most out of those guys, and Oladipo would have been the perfect Gary Williams player. He would have been, and Gary recognized it sort of after the fact, and, and, he, and he sort of you know beats himself up for 
not you know uh, n- not recruiting Oladipo because he sort of knew that Oladipo was the perfect type of player for him, but he let something that really had nothing to do with the kind of player that Gary Williams developed shooting. He let that influence him. Um, anyway, uh, that was an interesting conversation, uh, yesterday too. You know, the funny thing about that is that meant that Oladipo would have been a freshman in 2011, which was Gary's final year at Maryland. Uh, he had Jordan Williams playing for him at center and Jordan Williams was a sophomore and was a tremendous talent, tremendous talent. Or actually, Jordan Williams would have been a junior that year. It would have been his junior year. And Jordan Williams, you know, left after his junior year, which was ridiculous. Um, he shouldn't have. Uh, actually, no, that was that was Jordan Williams' sophomore year. My fault. That was his sophomore year. His freshman year was the year, was 2010, Gravis' senior year. And he was a tremendous player, if you recall, as a freshman. What hands he had as a basketball player. Tremendous hands and feet. And a volume rebounder. He had a chance to become a great college basketball player had he stayed all four years. One of the reasons he never made it in the NBA, he had short arms. It was a physical limitation. But he's a great, great, uh, had a, a, a chance to be a great college basketball player. But Oladipo and Jordan Williams together, you know, with Sean Mosley, um, you know, they had a chance. They had a chance to, to be really good moving forward, and and Gary may have continued to coach had he recruited recruited Oladipo. In fact, I bet he would have. Had he had Oladipo as a freshman, he would have recognized how great they could have been with Oladipo. Um, even if he lost Jordan Williams, maybe he stays on. Um, lastly, uh, before we roll for the day, I wanted to read this tweet, which... Um, I thought was an interesting tweet and sort of uh, a, a recap in many ways of the Jordan documentary. Um, the tweet came from a guy by the name of Scott McGee. Scott McGee um, is a baseball coach at Willard High School. I think it's Willard High School in Missouri. He's only got a thousand followers, less than a thousand followers, but. His tweet the other night got incredible traction for a guy with 900 and something followers on Twitter. All right. It came after the last dance's final episode. And he tweeted something that, you know, obviously, uh, by the way, I'm looking at it right now, had close to 50,000 likes, 8,200 retweets, and 222 responses. That is a pretty. Um, significant tweet for somebody with less than a thousand followers in, ter- in terms of the response. It it basically, for his intents and purposes, went viral. This is what he tweeted after the last dance: Michael Jordan played JV as a sophomore. Pippen started college as a manager. Rodman didn't play high school basketball. Steve Kerr had no offers until after his senior year. Meanwhile, we have people trying to commit as eighth graders, worrying about exposure and constantly comparing young age groups. Just get better. What a great tweet and great, great lesson and so instructive for young people and parents of young athletes. If your kid isn't on the freshman team, didn't make the freshman team, it doesn't mean that he is done or she is done. If they're not getting the scholarship offers you they you think they deserve to get, it's not over. Everybody everybody develops at their own speed, at their own pace. 
Um, it really is true. You know, nobody, none of these young people should be discouraged at a young age if they don't make a team or if they're not a starter or if they're not a leading scorer. None of that matters in eighth grade or ninth grade or in 10th grade. And in some cases, it doesn't even matter when they're seniors in high school. Love that tweet from Scott McGee, a baseball coach in Missouri. All right, we're done for the day. Back tomorrow with Tommy.